It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What you missed this week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television. What'd you miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week was another edition of What You Miss from Home. We spoke with David Hunt, CEO of PGIM, which has $1.3 trillion in assets under management. We tackled one of the biggest themes of the week, the intersection of the economy and markets. Investors seem to be looking past terrible economic data and focusing instead on brighter days ahead. I started by asking David if this decoupling between the real economy and the stock market keeps widening, or does it eventually get reconciled at some point? Well, Scala, first of all, let me say it's a pleasure to be, uh, to be with you, even uh, remotely. Um, and I think you've really put your finger on the key question uh, of the month, uh, and maybe no better day than today when we have uh, such a rally going on, despite continued very poor news, I would say, in the real economy. The short answer to your question is that we uh, actually believe the equity markets are substantially overvalued relative to what we think is going on in the real economy. In order to believe today's um, levels, you really need to believe we're going to have a sharp V-shaped recovery in earnings, starting really in the third and fourth quarters of this year and certainly for 2021. We don't think that's going to happen. We think there's going to be a much longer path to recovery, and that's really for for three reasons. Uh, First, we think consumption is actually going to stay low for a lot longer. Yes, businesses are going to open up, um, but it doesn't mean that they're going to do business at the same level that they did. Um, I often remind people that a great deal of consumer spending that happens in this country is done by people 50 and over, and they are likely to be much more conservative about jumping on an airplane and getting back to uh, daily life. Um, Secondly, we think that uh, unemployment is likely to stay, uh, you know, quite worryingly high for a long time. Um, And that's really because, well, first, some companies are not going to make it through uh, this at all and won't be rehiring. Others are going to do their rehiring in phases, and many are going to find that they don't need to hire all the employees back that they they had. So we actually think we will be stuck with a high unemployment rate for longer than people think. And the last reason, Scarlett, is that um, we have not even started to see uh, the next big uh, problem, which is the fact that uh, our states and cities and municipalities are going to have a huge hit to their, uh, their tax base and their revenues, and yet their expenses uh, remain very high. And that is really the next uh, crisis to come, um, which I think is going to, again, substantially affect uh, economic recovery. 
So for, for all those reasons, I think we remain uh, yeah. believers that this is going to be a slow road back and that the current markets are simply too yeah. rosy. So, David, uh, can you expand on that last point you made, particularly with uh, the increased burdens that a lot of states and uh, municipalities are going to have? Does this then translate, uh, and even at the federal level to a certain extent as well, does this translate then into something where we need to start anticipating a potentially higher tax base? And if so, how does that then affect things like consumer spending and the sort? No, I think it's a great, uh, it's a great point. I think that... Um there's no question that we will be looking uh, at higher uh, tax rates, both federal and, and state. Uh, we can talk longer term about, uh, about the deficit, but I think that's going to be part of the answer there. But my concern is actually more just over the next 18 months of getting uh, a number of these uh, groups through. As you know, uh, many states can't declare bankruptcy. They must, in fact, keep uh, a balanced budget. And that means they're going to have to have very substantial uh, um, cuts to uh, their services, which is the last thing that we can uh, afford at the moment. Personally, I believe that uh, leaving, I know it's a bit of a political third rail, but just from a practical economic point of view, I do believe that we're going to need a program uh, from the federal government um, to actually help out uh, states and, and particularly cities as we go through the next 18 months. What will that look like and what will each side have to give up to get that done? Because right now it feels like the Democrats and the Republicans are on complete opposite sides. Mitch McConnell even going so far as to suggest that certain states should perhaps <laughs> even file for bankruptcy. Yes, you're right. I think the politics of this are, uh, are, are, are very difficult and in fact may, may be ultimately uh, not solvable. But I think that the economic consequences of not being able to find a middle ground um, are really uh, very difficult to imagine. I mean, remember, so much of our education system, our hospital system, our emergency responders, our fire departments, that is all state and local government. And uh, their, their revenues are going down and their expenses are not. And we'll need to find a way to inject some cash, at least for a period of time, into that to keep the whole thing running. All right, David, I want to expand a little bit beyond uh, the U.S. borders here, because when we talk about uh, the performance of the U.S. market here and the expectations uh, for economic recovery that seem to be being priced in here, I'm wondering how we reconcile this with some of the expectations uh, for growth outside of the U.S., particularly in some of the emerging market nations, uh, the expectation that some of those nations uh, may lag the U.S. Uh, by a tremendous amount. There may be a wide gap there. And I'm wondering how we factor that all into growth prospects globally. I think it's a really good point, and I think this is the, the, the crisis that is uh, also yet to, uh, yet to really unfold. Um, many uh, emerging economies have taken on substantial debt over the last decade. Um, much of that debt is denominated in dollars. Uh, they've seen their currencies be pretty badly hit. Many of them are dependent on oil, um, which has obviously taken a real uh, hit as well. And so we now find ourselves where more than 100 countries have actually approached the IMF looking for some kind of, uh, of bailout um, or restructuring. And they're going to need it. Um, in order to be able to do that, the IMF is going to need the support of the major developed countries, including the United States. They're going to have to expand their SDRs in order to be able to meet the needs of those countries. And I think we're going to have to step up to the leadership of that. Um, many of these were formed under the leadership of the U.S. And I think it's very important that right now that they be uh, utilized to the max to try to make sure that these countries can deal 
with the real consequences to their economies, which hasn't really even been felt in, in much of the emerging markets yet. Um, our expectation is that we'll have a real bifurcation in the emerging markets, um, particularly for those mm-hmm. that are dependent on oil, suffering a really difficult time, and others coming back a bit more quickly. Yeah, you're talking about public debt. What about private debt? Uh, George Soros and Chris Canavan had written in Bloomberg Opinion uh, earlier this spring about the need to consider a comprehensive debt standstill for at least one year from both the official creditors and private creditors, That and they would both need to be on board with this idea. Is something like that even feasible in an era where far more flows come from bond markets rather than banks? So at the moment, it would be very difficult to uh, to pull off. You're absolutely right to point out that over the last decade, actually the banking system has gotten less and less important in the flow of capital, uh, particularly to developed economies. And the securities markets, particularly the bond market, has become much, much more important. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, that nothing can be done. So I think if, if the major countries, and they took some step forward, the G20, uh, to do this for, for public debt, and I do think that uh, it would be possible to get together some, uh, at least, of the major bondholding institutions and begin to talk about some level of forbearance for, uh, for the debt. So I think uh, Soros' comments was a good starting point. I think it would have to be modified, but we will need something like that to avoid uh, a lot of pain. Uh, David, well, we have to ask you about uh, what we've been seeing uh, in the rates markets, uh, particularly today uh, with the two-year yield hitting a record low uh, and Fed funds futures starting to price in uh, the likelihood in, in investors' minds that uh, we could see negative rates here, nominal rates here in the U.S. I just want to get your thoughts on that and what that could mean for markets. Oh, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, time to uh, to really kind of examine a lot of these issues, particularly with the bigger context in mind. I mean, we're now starting to see the kinds of new issuance that's going to be uh, required by the Treasury to meet all of these new requirements. We also see the introduction, uh, which we we were very much in favor of, of the 20-year. And we saw really a steepening uh, over the last week as people began to, to recognize this. At the same time, as you point out, uh, people are also starting to contemplate uh, the move to, uh, to negative rates. And so the, the short-term uh, implication of that has been a real steepening uh, of the yield curve. We don't think that's uh, going to last. We think that will gradually begin to flatten uh, over time. Um, but certainly for a while, uh, we'll probably live with a, with a steeper curve. Some states around the country have begun the process of reopening. Here in New York, that still seems pretty far off. To get a better sense of when the state could reopen, we spoke with someone who's been advising Governor Andrew Cuomo. Michael Dowling is CEO of Northwell Health, the largest health system and private employer in New York City. His hospital system has treated more COVID-19 patients than any in the U.S. And we asked what he would need to see across his facilities to give him the confidence to tell Governor Cuomo that the New York metro area is ready to start reopening. Well, a couple of things. Uh, one, you've got to see the numbers uh, to continue to decrease, which they are. We have had uh, uh, over a dozen days now in our health system of reduced numbers, uh, even though we have still 1,600 uh, COVID patients in our hospitals today. That is down from a height uh, of uh, 35 of 3,500 patients not that long ago. 
So you want to see the continuous reduction. Uh, and you want to make sure that the public uh, continues um, to practice uh, social distancing. You got to make sure that uh, people wear masks when they're outside. Uh, and if, as businesses open, when that decision is made, that we practice uh, social distancing back in the businesses when they do open. People wear masks, they avoid being in large groups. And that all businesses and the public continue to comply with the prevention side of this business. Because if the public doesn't continue to comply, yeah. then you could have a, re, a, a reorientation with more cases. Yeah, and let's talk about that reorientation, Michael, because obviously a big part of the whole reason why we had this lockdown, it wasn't just about the number of people being affected, but it was about the ability of hospitals uh, to treat those people and having the capacity to treat those people. Now that we're starting to see a reduction in growth rates and hopefully we'll get to the point where we start to see significant declines, uh, are the hospitals right now, are they in a position where they'll be able to manage, even if there is a minor uh, swell up in cases at some point, say uh, a few months from now, are we in a position where the hospitals are gonna be able to better manage uh, that inflow if it comes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're in a much better position today than, um, than we were when all of this started, even though I will say that the hospitals uh, did a tremendous job here. In our health system alone, we added almost 2,000 new beds we saw 13,000 COVID patients in our hospitals. And uh, similarly with other hospitals that saw lots of patients, we handled it very, very well. But because of that experience, uh, we know how to create beds quickly. We know how to deploy and mobilize staff into different locations quickly. And we all have putting plans together right now in anticipation that there could be an uptick in, in, in cases, maybe in the fall, that's what some people are suggesting. So all of us have put plans together uh, to make sure that we are completely ready if it does occur. So I have no hesitation okay. in saying that the hospitals are ready, will be ready, will have the capacity, will have the staff, and will have the PPE, the masks and the gloves and the gowns, et cetera. Uh, when you right. go through an experience like this, you make sure that you are ready uh, the next time and you learn you know, valuable lessons as you go through this. So the answer to the question is absolutely yes. I want to ask about your staff because the doctors and the nurses who are treating patients, they're on the front line here. They're risking their physical health, their mental health. Uh, there was an ER doctor um, over the past week, Dr. Lorna Breen, uh, who is at the New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital, who committed suicide partly because of the, the stress and the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic and, and the pain of dealing with all of it. What are you doing to take care of your workforce who may be mentally and emotionally traumatized as a result of COVID-19? Well, we provide, uh, we provide continuous communication to the workforce. I have to say that the, the, the dedication and the compassion of the employees that are out there and the courage that they demonstrated was absolutely extraordinary. So we're staying in continuous contact with all of the staff. I personally go out and meet with the staff on an ongoing, regular basis. We're providing a lot of emotional support, mental health support, we have enhanced our employee assistance programs. Um, we, uh, we provide all of the services that we can provide. And if we need to provide more, we will to make sure that our staff uh, are taken care of perfectly. Uh, it is unfortunate that we've had situations like the one you just mentioned, where somebody took their own life. That's a very unfortunate circumstance. Uh, but it is incumbent upon the, all, all those of us who are the employers 
to make sure that we put at the center of everything we do the care and the comfort and the security and the physical and mental health of employees. And that's what we're doing. That is a central part of our focus, has been and is now and will be for a long period of time. My guess is that there will be retention issues as a result of what people went through that will last for quite a while. So this won't end when the COVID-19 the COVID issue ends, whenever that might be. So I think there may be long-term effects here, uh, uh, not only for the workers, by the way, but also long-term effects for even the patients who survived COVID-19, who go home. I believe that we will have to provide ongoing, continued support for quite a period of time to come. And that's our obligation. That's what we have to do. And that's what we will do. Yeah. All right. So, Michael, so what is the sort of the, been the effect then on your business, on the bottom line, on the financials here, uh, given that most of your resources are going uh, directly to the COVID-19 fight? And it's going to be months uh, before we get back to any sort of normal sort of hospital operations. Are your financials uh, set up in a way uh, where you can still sort of make this a viable business or do you need uh, some of that more elective stuff to come back into the mix? Well, yes, the, the financial situation obviously has been has been difficult. Um, but uh, our view is that when you're in a crisis like this and the public depends upon you for their health and well-being protection, that you do what you have to do in a circumstance like this. Uh, when you're in it, you don't worry too much about the money. We are losing a lot of money in our health system alone. It's in the range of $350 million a month. Uh, we are, we are a strong organization. We have a good balance sheet. Uh, but obviously, with any organization, you're hoping that this ends at some point, which I believe we're getting to the end of this phase. And then you want to get back your, your regular business. Remember, when we started, we, we stopped most of our surgery. Even though we did continue to do surgery that was life-threatening, if you didn't do it, somebody would have a disastrous outcome. But most of our revenue-generating business was stopped. And it was stopped for the purpose of being able to deploy staff from those functions into the hospital to take care of COVID yeah. patients. But what you do in a crisis, you don't worry about money in a crisis like this, you take care of the public. And then now we begin to figure out how do we recover? How do we get business back? And how do we get our finances back? And we will, we will succeed, yeah. we will get back. There is no losing here. You can only win in the circumstances as long as you sustain your effort over a long period of time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Then we discussed how global supply chains will evolve post-pandemic with Hamid Mogadam, chairman and CEO of Prologis. This is a firm with $125 billion under management, 
that invests primarily in logistics, warehouses, and other industrial facilities. Well, obviously, the uh, U.S. supply chain, like every other supply chain, was unprepared for a shock of this scale. So it took a while for the supply chain to be able to react. But I've actually been pretty impressed with the ability of a lot of companies to uh, to be able to get their operations going so that we haven't had major inter- interruptions of supply in key categories. You you hear stories here and there, but by and large, I think the industry has done a really good job of responding to a 100-year uh, storm. So no major interruptions, but surely there have been changes and adaptations made. How do you see the flow of goods traveling through warehouses changing as a result of the pandemic? How is it changing right now? And how do you see it changing six months, one year down the road? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I really think of the effect as immediate, uh, sort of intermediate term and then long term. Um, What we saw in the immediate uh, aftermath of the virus hitting was actually an increase in demand from uh, e-commerce players uh, that just pretty much had to lease every square inch of space to meet the surging demand. These are categories, e-commerce players, grocers, uh, medical supply companies, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other hand, as, uh, as we went along, uh, there were other categories that were not doing well, like uh, bricks-and-mortar retail, um, you know, the hospitality business, et cetera, that, uh, that inventory started piling up in their warehouses because they weren't going anywhere. So on the slow end, there was some creation of demand uh, as well. So both the good end and the bad end were, were doing well. And our leasing volumes uh, for the last month, month and a half, have been actually ahead of the same period last year, et cetera, which is a little counterintuitive. I think in the medium term, uh, once that surge is over, I think we would have pulled up a demand uh, by a couple of quarters. So I think there will be a slight slowdown of demand. And then you'll see the effect of the firms that are not doing well coming through. So we expect demand uh, this year to decline from an original estimate of about 250 million square feet to about, down to about 100 million square feet. Long term, I think this bodes very well for demand for logistics because I think we have now learned the lesson that uh, designing the supply chains for maximum efficiency means that we have to sacrifice resilience and we can't uh, absorb shocks like this. So I think going forward, people will build uh, slightly less efficient and more resilient uh, supply chains with inventory in more places uh, along the way. Right. All right. So you so you think there could be then you start to see a little bit more holding of inventory, at least more so and what normally happened. I'm curious about the customer mix. So, I mean, obviously, we know, you know, the Amazons of the world and FedExes and Walmarts, of course, uh, depend a lot on your company and some of your competitors. I'm curious as to whether you think there's a potential here for newer customers, uh, the types of businesses that maybe didn't have as much need or didn't see as much of a need uh, for your type of services uh, a year ago or two years ago that might now, given the COVID-19 outbreak, be reevaluating their sort of online presence and their logistics presence and thinking maybe this is a service that's going to benefit us down the road. Sure. Um, so we're a provider of the real estate, not the service. But uh, but I think your point still holds. For sure, the transition from uh, from regular retail to online has been accelerated by this event. 
it was happening anyway. It's been happening for the last 10 or 15 years. But I think it just took a hockey stick up uh, because a lot of people that were not in the normal demographics of online shopping have been forced to explore online shopping. And you know what? They've liked it. So I think uh, the the shift in share is, is just going to accelerate. Um, groceries, for example, were 15 to 2% online. Now they're in the teens. That's a tremendous expansion of that category alone. So uh, I think basically a lot of the trends that were in place before, including the shift to e-commerce, are just simply going to get accelerated uh, by this uh, by this shock. But they would have happened anyway. It just would have taken longer. So I really like what you said about choosing between resilience and efficiency, and perhaps um, there might be a shift more towards resilience. Um, what is the cost of that shift? What does it mean for expenses and then therefore for gross margin? Well, uh, it will cost more to carry inventory with, because it means uh, you have to have more of your capital invested in in basically things that are sitting around, so that that's not super efficient. But if you think about all the lost margin because of the disruption in supply chain, not having the product available for sale, uh, the shortages that you see, the margin loss in missing those sales uh, overwhelms uh, the slightly increased cost of carrying inventory in most categories. Of course, it's a case-by-case analysis, but generally speaking, missing sales is a more significant negative than uh, paying more inventory costs. The COVID-19 crisis is not the only thing on the White House's plate right now. Trade war fears were reignited this week as President Trump sharpened his criticism of Beijing and demanded answers about the origins of COVID-19. We spoke about the developments with Wendy Cutler. She's a former senior U.S. trade official who is now at the Asia Society as vice president and managing director of the Society's Policy Institute. We asked what this tension could mean for implementing the phase one trade deal between China and the U.S. Well, um, as you as you know, um, the president's very concerned about um, the COVID response or actually lack of response from China. And as a result, the administration is considering a lot of options. What concerns me is that the phase one trade deal is somehow being brought into that narrative up until now, over the past two and a half months, China seems to be on track in terms of implementing most of the detailed commitments that it had agreed to. So now that the phase one deal is being brought into the debate, um, it leaves me kind of scratching my head because I thought this was a major accomplishment of the Trump administration on the foreign policy side. Yeah, I mean, Wendy, I mean, that's a good point. One thing I I am curious about is uh, if the administration, and particularly Trump himself, is uh, interested in escalating or re-escalating this trade war, I'm curious as to what sort of leverage you think the U.S. has, because uh, when Trump sort of went down this path before, the, the big sort of ace up his sleeve was that he had a relatively strong U.S. economy uh, that could sort of weather any sort of disruptions. Obviously, now that that's not necessarily the case. Well, exactly. I think the talk of imposing more tariffs um, is going to scare U.S. companies, U.S. workers, U.S. consumers. We're at a time where we sh- where we're giving benefits to our stimulus packages to um, workers and to companies, and the notion that we are going now to charge them more money through tariffs um, is kind of goes against everything we're trying to do with respect to um, getting our economy back on track. 
if the U.S. decides to impose uh, more tariff sanctions on China, will it find the rest of the world in agreement with it? We know that there's been increased tensions between Europe and China as well, uh, particularly the way China handled COVID-19. I think a number of other countries are beginning to side with the United States in terms of wanting an answer on the origins of COVID. So, yes, they share our concerns, but then we get to the issue of tactics. And when it comes to tariffs, we have seen time and time again that other trading partners just don't support our use of tariff hikes, um, you know, against countries that go against the international rules of the World Trade Organization. Hmm. Wendy, though, one one thing, though, that has come up uh, amid all the COVID-19 disruptions is this idea that uh, maybe there is some wisdom in trying to move more manufacturing back in, in within your own borders or, or just, and really not only just manufacturing, but really a lot of the even some of the services that we were sort of importing from China and from other countries as well. Do you think that that's a trend uh, that the administration itself has been pushing? Do you think that's a trend that the uh, industries themselves will embrace more than they had, uh, say, a couple of years ago? Yeah, I, I definitely think as a result of COVID and a lot of companies, for a lot of companies and for a government, it's been a wake-up call. And in certain products and certain sectors, we're over-reliant, not only on China, but other countries as well. So I think you're going to see a real a reassessment of supply chains, of kind of putting so much emphasis on lower costs and efficiencies and, and trying to achieve that balance with, with um, um, achieving resiliency and diversification. So I think you're going to see a move to either regionalize um, supply chains, bringing some them back to the United States or to our neighborhood, or also um, um, encourage the formation of supply chains with with other countries, um, with other allies and partners, kind of this notion of secure supply chains with trusted trading partners. So, I, yes, I think we're going to see those trends. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.